we all have our own paths. God's created us to uh, certain body types and brains and passions and desires. I think we should fully embrace those and stop trying to compare ourselves. If you're scared, that's okay. That's actually a good thing. You should be a little scared. This is not natural, but now you need to push through that. We don't grow by sitting on our couch playing Nintendo and eating Cheetos. We grow by pushing ourselves, and, and that's where true growth happens. This is episode four of the Android Strength Podcast with Brandon Bargo. Welcome to the Android Strength Podcast. Every day, ordinary people sacrifice everything to transform their bodies. They commit their lives to push themselves beyond the limit. They're on a journey to become extraordinary. These are their stories. Here's your host, Mark Mulzer. Brendan Bargo is many things, but one thing he's not, and that's boring. He's an athlete, a risk taker, an entrepreneur, a filmmaker, an outdoor expert, a team builder, a leadership coach. And uh, recently he became member of the Elusive Explorers Club, where people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Neil Armstrong are members. And that makes Brandon a true modern day adventurer. Brandon has consciously chosen to follow his own path. Together with his brother Greg, Brandon embarked on a lifelong journey to climb mountains and conquer the highest points in every country. As a two-man team, they are seeking the unknown and pushing the limits of the human condition. That by itself is remarkable. But what makes Brandon extraordinary is his desire to share his experiences with others. His values are deeply rooted in serving others, creating a better world for everyone, making it more accessible, helping people find new paths and reach new heights. In today's episode, we retrace Brandon's journey and relive his world record attempt to climb all of the seven highest peaks in Central America in only 11 days. We can learn from him the importance of never losing your sense of wonder. He wants us to feed our curiosity. He reminds us that it's up to us to break our limiting beliefs, that we are empowered to shape our own future. He encourages us to take risks and define our own destiny. Get inspired by Brandon's passion to live an extraordinary life. Get infected by his energy. Get motivated to take the first step out of your comfort zone because it is up to you to choose your own path. All right, Brandon Bargo. I'm so excited you're here today. This is going to be fun. Well, uh, I think what's awesome is we have... A pretty unique history. Uh, there's not many people that can say they played European football together. Yeah, so. isn't that crazy? How long is that ago? It was what, 93, I think? I think I was 23, and I'm 24 now, so that's only... <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was... I don't know. How many years ago was that? It seemed like it was so just the, yesterday. Yeah, I know. 97 is when we went undefeated, and you were on that team, right? No, what? that was the year before. When I played, so was, I think you lost every game. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. we sucked pretty hard. Didn't we? No, I think it was 1998. So it was a year after. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I went and, and played receiver, running back. I, I still talk about it all the time. I think it was amazing. That was the craziest thing. So, like, you guys, how did I know? I know David was um, my friend. David was working as an intern at this IT company I worked, and we had this German football team, and the we had Pensburg no idea. Miners. The Pennsburg Miners. We had no idea what we were doing, and then. 
um, next thing I know is David shows up in town. He's working for the post office or something, right? And uh, someone at the post office says, hey, you, you play football in America. There's a team here. You should go play. And he just walked on the team and started crushing it. Yeah. I, I, so I, I was playing rugby. I played rugby all through college. And our mutual friend, David, who uh, <laughs> we, I went to high school with, he, he and this called, was in in Austin, right? This was Austin, Texas, yeah. And uh, so he said, "Man, you should come play football in your off season." <laughs> so I was like, "What are you talking about?" And uh, yeah, so I ended up in my off season of uh, my collegiate rugby team. I went and and played football. It was just outside of Munich, I guess. Right. And, uh, yeah. And so, and then I went right back and played rugby right after that. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, I can't remember the first day you walked on the field, but I know, I know when David came, he made a pretty big splash because he was, he had his little OU. Well, uniformer. what's funny is when I, when I, uh, started my first day at practice, they didn't have a helmet for me. And I was like, well, I just came from rugby. So, <laughs> <laughs> so on my whole first day of practice, I didn't even have a helmet. I think it was hilarious. Right, right, right. What was your first impression when you walked in? It was like these, all these crazy Germans and they had no idea what they were doing, hacking away. On yeah. Well, thing. I knew that I was going to probably do pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It was, and then, uh, and then you had to wear an A on your helmet. To, uh, that's to, right. To show that's that right. You an American. So yeah, you could, you could, we could only have two Americans on the team. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, I, I thought it was awesome. This was like college days, right? So we didn't care. We just went to college and drank a bunch of beer and you know, played football on the weekends. And we had a, a David and I had a moped that we drove around <laughs> in. We'd wear, we'd wear a football exactly. helmet. And yeah, tell me how exactly. I think I think you, you didn't even have a place to stay or something, right? You just didn't kind of got a ticket, got on a plane. and came I did, to Yeah, I didn't have, other than I was going to go play football. And then uh, somebody stuck me in their basement and I, you know, stayed next to the bottle of beer, bottle, <laughs> bottles of beer. And, yeah, it was great. I remember you were there the whole, the whole season, but only one season, I think, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah right, I was right. one and done. Get me in and out. Right, right, right. But uh, you had a pretty big impact. I think you carried the ball quite a bit. And you yeah, I had. I think I scored six or seven touchdowns. I had a. I had a kickoff return, a hundred yards, uh, <laughs> called back. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the German refs didn't know the uh, the full. Yeah, we had no. Like I said, we had no idea what we were doing. It was crazy. And uh, and so so then uh, then what happened? So because after that, I think it wasn't it wasn't until 2000 and I then I came to the states. So there were probably two or three years where I lost contact with you. What happened when you went back? You played played rugby, eventually graduated. Yeah, so if you want to know the uh, the quick the quick uh, rundown history of Brandon Bargo, uh, it's it's basically either sports or adventure. Uh, and so, yeah, basically after I played football, I, I I played rugby. I think a total of six seasons. So once I graduated college, uh, I played. It's kind of a semi pro league uh, rugby team here in Austin. So I did that, and I traveled and played uh in Ireland and in Europe so that was it was a great great experience but really what I wanted to do once I realized uh, that I wasn't going to be a professional football player uh, <laughs> is I wanted I wanted to just go and, and climb mountains you know I didn't really know what that looked like and so for me my history's kind of been all over the place but I had this this really clear picture that I wanted to go do adventure I wanted to climb mountains uh, and so I Basically, so this is a, guy, a kid that grows up in in Texas where it's flat. Yeah, it's rock. crazy. Not only not only Texas, but I grew up on the border of Mexico, uh, Laredo, Texas, which is considered one of the worst places to live in the United States because <laughs> it's so hot, right? So flat. It's like desert. Uh, just a pretty rough place to live in. 
And, and that, where did that dream come from? Did you watch movies like K2 or something? Or you, uh, you just know, read, read books? Or you just, I, yeah, that, just I, I don't know. It was, it was just this weird thing that was that was in me. I, I don't know. I, it was probably a combination of two things, but my grandmother traveled all over the world, and she'd always come back bringing back pictures to me. And and, uh, and then my grandfather, who was a missionary in Mexico, and so I would go with him. He'd go into these tribes and, you know, uh, talk to the, the, the people, and, you know, bring him food and that kind of thing. And he'd go into the mountains and I'd go with him. And so I think between those two things is just, I, you know, I got uh, exposed to it early on. And so I, I didn't really know what it looked like. I didn't know if you could make any money uh, climbing mountains, um, but I knew I wanted to do it. So uh, after I played some rugby in Texas, I moved to Utah, uh, Park City, Utah. And, my bro- and I, I recruited my brother. He was, uh, he was going to school. And uh, I had graduated college. <laughs> he, he left college so he could go with me to Utah. And I started competing in the sport of skeleton because I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool to be in the Olympics? So you said, hey, I'm, I'm going to uh, just go to get my ass to Utah and uh, try out for the skeleton team, right? Which is basically you live in the Olympic Village, I suppose. And you just try it. You just showed up and said, hey, I'm Brandon Bargo with my bar- buddy, <laughs> yeah, with my brother here. I just want to, you know, can I ride down this hill? How, yeah. how did that go? So basically how that happened was I had, I started researching sports. I'm like, how can I get into the Olympics as quick as possible? <laughs> and, uh, and skeleton is this crazy sport. If you don't know what it is, you got bobsled where everybody knows what the bobsled you get in this little thing and you either two or four people. Then you got luge where you lay on your back and you go down the ice track. And then, of course, you got skeleton, which you lay on your chest and you're going head first, 80 miles an hour, <laughs> pulling five G's through these corners. And it's 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 like a ride you've never felt before. And so I but you like, have zero experience at this point. Like, no experience. So how how you become a skeleton athlete is, um, well, I called him up and said, hey, I want to be a skeleton athlete. <laughs> what do I need to do? <laughs> they just in the phone book, like, hey, skeleton school or what? <laughs> yeah, just looked him up online. And so they said, you have to come try out. And they were looking for ex-football, ex-track. You know, they were looking for people who were fast, basically, is what they were doing. And so my brother and I went. I recruited him. Uh, and we went and did this tryout, and basically we did a bunch of sprints and vertical jumps and things like that. And they're like, okay, you're a good enough athlete. Why don't you come to skeleton school? Uh, and so <laughs> skeleton school was a week long, and uh, basically – And they, these were all kids from, from around there, I suppose. like a lot, a lot of people from Utah, but we uh, – in 2002, the U.S. won gold men's and women's. And so there was a lot of interest uh, in skeleton all of a sudden because we got gold medals. And so you have these guys that uh, live in Utah who want to just go down the road and try out. And then we had there was people from all over the U.S. Uh, and so we went to skeleton school. It was about a week long. Uh, and they, they teach you how not to kill yourself because you're going <laughs> 80 miles an hour. And we wore these pads. You know, you look like, you know, you're playing football. You got these shoulder pads on. And I'm telling you, you know, I played rugby for like six years. I played football with you. I've never been in so much pain than when I did skeleton because you're going 80 miles an hour and we would hit these concrete walls and we would smash into them going 80 miles an hour. That and is it crazy. It was so painful. My, my forearms would be like balloons and they were just covered in bruises. And I'd be going down it and I would have tears streaming down my eyes because <laughs> it was so painful. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this, man. It's so painful. But uh, – so we get a skeleton license. So you have a license to drive down so, the track. So, so hold on just one second. So, I, so how does it, I mean, how do I envision this? So you, you get there and there's this 
the you know track thing and i suppose they just carry you up there like there's an elevator or whatever and they put you <laughs> on a skeleton and give you a push and off you go or i mean is there sort of like a ground school kind of thing where you, you so you cool runnings you know like, what? <laughs> actually I, I did i used to train with Jamaican <laughs> that's another story uh, yeah um and the john candy guy he's a real guy he uh he lives in park city but uh anyway that's another story that's another <laughs> podcast you take a truck up so you slide down and then you take a truck, they load you into the truck, you know, you get like five or six athletes and they drive you up the hill to the top. And it's about a mile long track. So you drive up to the top and when you're starting in the school, you, you slowly progress. So uh, they start you actually not at the top of the hill, they start you about two thirds of the way up and you don't run, you just get on and you just kind of slowly go down, but slowly becomes really fast in a really short period. And so I mean, that's, there's like no friction on this thing. Plus, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, you're kind of going 50, 60 in the beginning and then you're all the way up to 80. So by the end of it, after this slow progression, you're sprinting, which is why they wanted fast people. You're sprinting about 30 meters um, right off the blocks, you know, and you're just going as fast as you can. And then you jump onto the sled, lay on your chest, tuck your head down, you know. and So this is by going. yourself, right? This is not like yeah. dual... This is not this is not the two man awkward let's sit on each other's laps <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to do that. So tell me about that first ride. I mean, so the, the tunnel is getting smaller and you're getting faster and you're like, holy shit! And the first it's, first turn, what happens? It's an ama- it's an amazing thing. And and what usually happens is it takes like twenty or thirty times going down the track where things start to slow down. So you're going eighty miles an hour. And you have to steer the sled. And so the way that works is you use your head and you turn your, if you turn your head just slightly, it'll move the sled. If you push down on your thigh with your quad onto the sled, it'll turn the sled. So it doesn't take that much. And so you're moving your body and then that kind of helps either turn you or keeps the oscillations on the curves, right? And so there's all these subtle movements, which is really hard for me to do because I'm a guy who likes to be very aggressive. And I played rugby and I played football. I did all these really aggressive sports. And so I do really well sprinting off the, off the blocks, being really aggressive. You get really pumped up and then you have to calm yourself down and you try to memorize the track, you know, so you're memorizing all these curves and, the, and these very specific moves that you have to do within the curve because you have these big oscillations. You have the five G's that wants to throw you up into the wall and then it brings you back down and then it takes you back up with the oscillation and it brings you back down. So you have to do these minor steering adjustments and so it's very it's a very precise sport and and so you have to go from being really pumped up to being really calm and then having all this and visualization is really key in in that sport so you're just really visualizing before you even start uh and then you know hopefully you don't wreck which i did (laughs) (laughs) all all, very often but there's one specific time you know i i get like i said i pretty aggressive guy so I'm like man this you know this would be awesome if one time I just you know jump off and spin around or whatever and I never thought that after I had this crazy wreck so I got a new sled and the sled was like the Ferrari of sleds and so I didn't really know it very well so it didn't take much to uh, make this thing just you know shoot off the track and so I did this really hard steer when I started going through the curve and uh, it shot me straight up into the wall and the wall was about 12 feet high so I smashed the top part of the wall and then I came back down and hit the bottom part of the wall which is, was the concrete 
and it flipped me off the sled. And I was at that point, I was probably going 65. And uh, I woke up, you know, with blood all over me. I'd split my chin open. And uh, just so like, this is basically ice covered. So you, you yeah. drop from 10 foot flat yeah. or you're inverted at this point and just basically yeah. fall out of the sky onto ice. Yeah. And then just blacked out. And then I wake up and there's, you know, the EMT guys, you know, next to me and there's my split my chin open. And so it took me about a month where I was able to be like, I, I think I have enough <laughs> courage to go back down. So it really shakes, shakes your mind a little right. bit. And, uh, yeah, so it, it definitely has its its uh, its dangers, which is why it took years before they reintroduced it back into the Olympics. It, it for a long time they they banned it, and so I was like, "That's the sport for me." Right, crazy. Yeah. So 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 you you're going through this. By the way, pull the pull the microphone just a little bit closer to you, just a little bit. There you go. Um, so so you go through the school. That's what you said. Two weeks long. Yeah, it was about a week. A week. Okay, and what happens after that? Uh, so then we get invited to be a part of the U.S. development team. And so we start training with new, you know, new athletes and the U.S. team. And so then it's just kind of a slow process of, you know, getting better. Uh, we go to Calgary and, and train and slide. And we had the Dallas Cowboys strength and conditioning coach <laughs> that came and taught us all kinds of stuff, which was really cool. Uh, and so you're part of sort of this organization at this point. So are you are you staying like in that Olympic Village up there, or, or it's all self-funded at this point? Yeah, or? that's well, that's the problem with these kinds of sports like skeleton that no one's heard of is it's all self-funded, and you can try to get sponsorships or try to you try to figure out however you can. I mean, even me training and going down the track every time i go down the track it's subsidized but you're still having to pay for it i have to pay for my sled for which, every for every ride you go yeah, down you have to pay yeah. for it wow and then uh and then you know the sled was pay for the gold medal when you win it 25 yeah exactly <laughs> so it's a, it, it's one of those things and in the end you know I, I think i stuck with it for about two and a half years um my brother was a little maybe he was a little bit longer and the guys that we started with and girls you know eventually of, you know, a couple of them that we trained with made it into the Olympics, but we started in 2002 and they, uh, it took them until this, this past Olympics in Sochi, uh, which was just the other day to make it into the Olympics. Wow. So it took them all that amount of time. So that's countless dollars, countless hours. And, uh, you know, you may or may not make it. And so in, in the end, you know, I, I just wanted to climb mountains. And so what I would do in the off season when I was doing skeleton is I joined the mountaineering club, the Utah mountaineering club. And so I would go do these climbs probably when I should have been doing, you know, skeleton training <laughs> right. but I, because I, I just really wanted to be in the mountains and being in park city, it was a great, a great environment to do that. Right. So, so, so this is sort of when the first hikes started happening and you're, you're, you're getting introduced to things like Alpine, I, you know, uh, right before I left for Utah, I, I went and did a mountaineering uh, school. It's called National Outdoor Leadership School, and it's one of the top outdoor schools that you can go to. And I specialized in mountaineering, and I went to North Cascades National Park, which is in northern Washington. And so I learned the skills that I needed to climb mountains safely. And I kind of put that on the back burner so I could go do skeleton. But, you know, in between, I went and climbed Mount Rainier went climb Mount Whitney and did a, a more technical route. So I was kind of gathering a few peaks here and there, learning, you know, learning more skills, just getting getting used to it and just building up my climbing resume. So so at this point in time you these are the first real peaks you're you're climbing and 
And uh, was that a challenge for you at the time? I mean, you were pretty conditioned pretty well, right? So to all that, you've lived at altitude already, so you kind of had the basics down. But was that entry, was it hard for you? Or, you know, when you first showed up at that mountaineering school, did they sort of give you a rundown first? Like, this kid from Texas, what does he know? Yeah, I think I I didn't really know what to expect other than, like I said, I I loved climbing mountains. Um, I think my first initial reaction when I climbed my first big mountain in my mountaineering school was, man, this is kind of boring. Okay. <laughs> Cause I just come, you know, I'm, I'm doing skeleton, I'm doing rugby, I'm doing all these fast paced things. I just thought it's, it's kind of slow, you know? And when I did my, my mountaineering school, we were carrying 70 pound packs, which was ridiculous. And I was like, well, I can't go fast. Cause I'm carrying this huge pack, but just the pace on the glacier and being roped up and all that kind of stuff. It's just more, methodical and slower and so I was like is this really what I you know envisioned and what I really want to do you know and so it took a little transitioning and saying well I love being outside and it's a different kind of challenge it's not quite as fast-paced as all the sports that I've played you know my whole life because I was always a sprinter and you know I was it's all about fast and so this was a this was a different change of pace and so I think once I got that mindset you know, the skills slowly started to come, you know, because those those are those are learnable. And then I, I had a really solid base from pushing myself right. and being really fit. And I think mentally uh, is when I really started to say, man, this is awesome because uh, there's there's limitless possibilities for pushing yourself. Right, right, right. And so so how are you sustaining yourself at this time? I mean, you just graduated from college, you know, you're living off savings, you're like picking up odd jobs here and there, you know. Yeah, you know, I feel like if you if you focus on the vision, then the you know, I don't want to say they're not important things. They are important because you got to live, you got to pay your bills. But the, you know, like you can you can make it work. Right. And so like when we were doing skeleton and we were climbing those peaks, you know, we worked out at the uh, the ice track where we were sliding. We were the only two athletes who were actually working on the track, waking up, you know, 5 a.m., going and putting ice on the track that we were about to tear up when we crashed into it. And uh, we would do these 12-hour days where we would be working on the ice track and then sliding. And then uh, and then we transitioned to there was a bunch of athletes on the team who uh, were ex-business guys. You know, they were young guys, but sharp. And so they started a, a mortgage company. We okay. started doing mortgages <laughs> on the side. So it was kind of like whatever, whatever we need to do. But there's to, definitely to a the, big, pretty big hustle involved at this point. Yeah, you're, you're just hustling, trying to make money, and you know, and, uh, and and we're finding opportunities. Either we create our own, or our friends are kind of opening doors for us. You know, and I mean, we're not making a whole lot of money, but we're not making enough to pay the bills and and do what we love to do. Right. That's cool. So, so you got your first uh, peaks under your belt, and this is where you really start thinking, man, I'm not going to go get a real job. I think this is what I could do for, for a living. So you have the qualifications now. You can take people into the mountains safely. What happens after that? Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I was constantly always trying to weigh back and forth, like, do I, need a, do I need to get a real job and make money and then save that money and go climb mountains? Or do I just focus on what I love to do and then if I focus on that, everything else will fall into place, you know. And so I did, I tried doing both things. And I, you know, tried sitting in an office wearing a tie <laughs> and uh, I was like, you know, pulling my hair out and I just couldn't do it. I could not do it. And so I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to do what I love and hopefully the money uh, will follow. And uh, so 
I had, I did have, you know, some experience doing the mortgages and, and, uh, some other business experience over the years that I was like, I'm just going to start my own business, um, and start my own outdoor adventure business, which, you know, that's, that's big and risky, but so is climbing mountains. Right. Exactly. You know? And so I, I, um, yeah, I felt like I had mountaineering school. I'd climbed, you know, I'd climbed at this point, I climbed Mount Rainier, I'd climbed Mount Whitney. And I'd done a few peaks in Mexico. The three, there's, there's a bunch of volcanoes in Mexico, and I climbed the third highest peak in North America. So I, I approached my brother and was like, hey, we should go do something crazy. And, uh, you know, at this point, we, were, we both, you know, had a little stint at an office job. And so we were getting really stir crazy. And so I started uh, researching, you know, some, some crazy things. And I, the two things that I really like, I like climbing mountains and I love sharks. And I don't know why those, <laughs> okay. two, those two don't really go together, but I just, I've always loved sharks. So I was like, how can I climb a mountain and then go scuba dive with great whites? And so I, that's how I came up with uh, our biggest expedition up to that point called the Summit to Sea Expedition. Okay. Where we were going to climb Mount McKinley in Alaska, now called Denali, and bike 4,000 miles to Baja, Mexico, and scuba dive with great white sharks. Okay. And it was going to be, you know... Not this is something that you just came up with. Just you came said, up hey, with because I like sharks and I like mountains. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, we can, you know, maybe we can start a business. I don't know what it's going to look like, but let's go do this crazy trip. And it was just like this way to jumpstart it. And, I, you know, I got my degree in journalism in college. I was like, maybe we can film it, you know, and just do something crazy and something will come from it, you know. And, uh, and so that ended up being a four-month expedition. So this is just you and your brother at this just point? Just me and my it's, brother. It's not like you're, you're signing people up to, to go with you. You're just right. doing that by We're yourself. We're just like, let's do something crazy where we can uh, get something started. So, yeah, just me and my brother. And uh, and so we climb Mount McKinley, just the two of us. You know, I would say maybe we're a little bit uh, not quite – you know, up to the standard of the mountain, uh, but we're, you know, pretty audacious. And, uh, and so we, yeah, we ended up making it. It took us 16 days to get to the summit. We summited on the 4th of July. We had 40 minus 40 degree winds, or I should say 40 below temperature, 60 mile an hour winds. So, I mean, it was just like this Miserable. brutal, you know, brutal mountain. And, uh, at one point we had to dig a snow cave to get out of the, you know, horrendous winds. I mean, it's just, it was a, uh, I don't like to use the word epic very much, but it was definitely uh, an epic trip. And so we were so motivated that we we're like, well, climbing Mount McKinley is only the first part of this expedition. We still have to bike 4,000 miles, you know? So we, uh, we climbed the peak. We have our bikes shipped to the base of the mountain. We uh, put our bikes together. We have a trailer. We load our trailer down with, you know, our camping equipment, our food, and then we just start biking. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, that was a whole separate thing where, we, you know, at, at points, you know, we're getting charged by grizzly bears. There's black bears everywhere. We get charged by a moose. You know? <laughs> <laughs> These animals coming out of the woodwork, you know. And, so uh, the, you're riding mountain bikes or road bikes? or There were uh, like tour trail? bikes. So tour it's bikes. like a road bike that's a little heavier duty because <laughs> we're hauling all our own equipment. So, you, yeah, exactly. You got that little trailer, you know, screwed back um, to the bike and you got all your stuff. With yeah, I mean, we're hauling stuff. 90 pounds each, you know, and... Uh, and then we, a lot of logistics that go into that. So we would have food shipped to um, drop-off points in, at post offices. And we'd go to the post office, pick up our food, and, and keep going. Wow, that's crazy. So tell me about that <clears throat> sort of that first day. He's like, 
um, you have 4,000 miles to go, and you're basically heading south at this point. Is there, what, what route did you take? Um, we, well, Talkeetna is the small town at the base of uh, McKinley, and so we biked from there and then just headed, you know, there's no direct path in Alaska, so we headed east to the uh, border with the Yukon, dropped through the Yukon, and then all the way through British Columbia, which is a massive province. And then through, uh, once we got to British Columbia, then we biked over to Vancouver Island. Well, took a ferry over, then biked down Vancouver Island, which was beautiful. Then took another little ferry, hopped over uh, the strait there, then got into Washington, then biked down basically from Washington all the way to California was a Pacific Coast Highway, which is spectacular, and then down into Baja. So that was that was the full route, and you know it's not, it's it, you know everybody always jokes it's all downhill from Alaska. <laughs> that is far from the truth. I mean, actually, we had bigger climbs going into um, California, like Oregon, um, you know, because it's just you're hugging the coastline, and so there's just you're just up and down the entire time. So how 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 did how did that go though? I mean. Uh, are you meeting people or children following you along? Are you sort of all by yourself the whole time? You know, any, do you meet anybody along the way? Yeah, it's uh, well, what's cool this is... This is before sort of the Facebook and Twitter thing. It, right? it, just before it. We right. were blogging and we were kind of like, you know, what are you guys doing? But we started blogging before really blogging was popular. Um, but we had quite a few people following us. Uh, you know, my mom and I think that was, maybe that was it. <laughs> 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 but so uh, I remember yeah. you guys going though. Yeah, we followed yeah. you, and, and we, we, we you know, for you, yeah, we ended up creating a documentary, which uh, we posted on YouTube recently. I need to find that link. It. I'll put it in the show notes. We can watch it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. It's a tearjerker. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so starting from Alaska, going down, like as we started going south, um, you know, I mean, it's so remote in Alaska and Yukon, and then even like northern British Columbia is just so remote. And, and so there was very few people, not much interaction. And the roads are horrible, too. I mean, roads half, are half, really the, bad. half the roads are not even paved. I roads heard. are bad, yeah. Um, but as we got further south, you know, we started having a lot more interaction. And it was actually, it was kind of, it was neat because you have so many different types of interactions from the north to the south. And, uh, yeah, people would come up to us all the time and want to, you know, want to know what we were doing. And uh, I feel like just because it was the two of us, uh, they just felt like they could share their their life with us. I mean, people would just tell us all kinds of crazy stuff, and we just, you know, we just sit there and just shake our head. And well, I guess. I how long did you think it was going to take you, and how long did it eventually take to get down? Uh, it took us for the bike portion. It took us three weeks for the mountain, and then it took us three months for the bike ride. And, wow. And um, we were pretty much on track, you know, the whole time. We well, the only reason we were on track is we kind of had this, you know, idea of we were going to bike five days and then, like, take a day off, you know, and it ended up being that we biked every day. <laughs> we maybe took uh, – we took a few times uh, – you know, we took a break in San Francisco because we had a friend there and we went scuba diving. And then the cool thing is once we got to San Francisco, I had a few friends and my sister and brother-in-law that came and met us, and they and that's where we did the, uh, the scuba dive because the Farallon Islands are off the coast of San Francisco. And so we had friends join us on that section – so we took a few days off there, and then we took a few days off in L.A. because uh, we had friends that lived on the beach, and, you know, you got to do that. Of course, of and, course. Uh, and so, but overall, I mean, you know, didn't take any breaks, um, and but that was the only way we could stay on schedule because we kind of had this, 
you know, this drop date that's like, all right, this is this is the last day. So did you have any problems along the way? I mean, I'm I'm sure, you know, all kinds of flat tires and, and whatnot. But was there a moment where you said, oh, oh I don't know if we're going to make it? Any, any any breaking points along the way? I, you know, I would say overall, we, we felt like the, the climb was so hard, you know, when we're digging snow caves. And I mean, the snow cave, if you go watch the, the video, the YouTube video, I mean, we which you should because it's good. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, we really was. It felt like a life or death type of situation where it's like we, you know, we're, we're, we're on the verge here, you know, of something bad happening. So I f we felt like after that that the bike, the bike trip was nothing, right. you know. And so we had a few, you know, we had flats and, you know, you have your, your minor, you know, issues. But they, that's – They may have been major if we hadn't have just climbed that mountain. Right. But they seem pretty minor. So that shifted us. your whole perspective it did. around. It, it, changed, it changed our perspective. And we were kind of like, man, I mean, we can do anything. You know, the worst case, we just stick our thumb out. And I'm sure some RV might come by, you know, eventually. Or even if not, we'll just push our bike to the 50 miles to the next town, <laughs> whatever, you know. I mean, right. we'll, we'll make it work. That's crazy. So when, when, when you, um, I guess you get closer to, to where you want to go. Um, how did how did you change? Well, well, tell me a little bit about you. You said you know, of course, you were really confident at the same time. But was there um, a perspective change that happened as long, as you got closer to your goal? And you said, hey, we set this huge ass goal, and we just we're really getting close to finishing it. What what was going through your minds at that time? I think it's you know, by the end of it, you know, once we had time to reflect, you know, we. I think we really realized, and it started, actually, I should say, it started, the, the shifts started happening, like, the more we started taking these big chunks out of the mileage, like, when we got to the 1,000-mile mark, we're like, man, we just did 1,000 miles, you know, and we did 2,000, like, 2,000 miles, because it's 3,000, you know, and, 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 every, and every bit of the way, you're just like, you know, I can't believe we just did that, but what it starts to do is, uh, I think it starts kind of shifting in your mind, like, man, you know, we can do anything. Right, exactly. And by the end of it, you're just like, man, there's nothing that I can't do, you know? And it's not a, I don't think it's a selfish or kind of, of an arrogant not. way of thinking about it. It's just like, I can't believe I just did that. And I really can bike 4,000 miles if I just bike 50 miles a day. So when that was sort of, you know, your rite of passage for uh, your your travel adventure company, in a, in a sense, to it sort of added some legitimacy To, to the whole idea of, you know, I, I want to do this commercially. I want to show other people um, how you, to do this and maybe take them to their to their perceived limitations and break through these barriers. Yeah, we start, I mean, that it was pretty much right after that's when we, you know, like, we're, you know, we're going to do this for the rest of our lives. And so uh, that's when we officially started the business. So not only did we enjoy taking people to do adventurous things and to challenge themselves, but whenever we're not doing that, we're still taking our personal <laughs> expedition. So, you know, anytime there's an open window and usually in the winter time, you know, we have, we have opportunities to go down South and do stuff. So anytime we had a, an opportunity, we're doing that. And, you know, my brother and I, uh, and I think, cause you know, he, he played rugby also. He, you know, he's played football. He, he's basically, he's my brother by, uh, younger, Uh, by seven years and so kind of he's just followed in the footsteps of whatever I do he does and he tends to do it better um, and so 
yeah, af- after that, you know, we just try to find different challenges that were harder. And so, you know, a few years after the uh, Summit to Sea Expedition in Alaska, we climbed the three highest peaks in Africa. We call it the One Blood Expedition. And uh, it was to climb the three highest peaks in Africa, bike to each peak, and then canoe across Lake Victoria, <laughs> Lake Victoria, which is the second largest lake in Africa. And that, and I, I would even say that was harder than the Summit to Sea Expedition because you're doing it, you're biking in Africa. Lake Victoria is like an ocean, and you got huge crocodiles. And there was one crocodile that ate 86 people in this one village that we try to avoid. <laughs> and then you got hippos. You know, you just got all these different types of. And challenges. they're pretty aggressive. People think you know happy hippos, yeah, pretty no, cool, cool dudes, no, but they, they they can get pretty aggressive. They're not happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then and you know and uh, I think the other thing that we're always trying to do is do adventure with purpose and and for a purpose. And so you know. Often you'll hear mountaineers that say, you know, they climb mountains and they, they realize that it's a selfish pursuit. And, you know, I, I, can, I can agree with them if that's what they are focusing on is just kind of these, you know, these big climbs or just trying to do stuff for themselves. And so I feel like if you, if you shift your perspective, then you can do it uh, for other reasons than just ticking off peaks because – one thing I've found as I've been climbing peaks over the years is as soon as you climb one peak, you're ready for the next peak, right. you know, and you can never quench that, that desire to just keep climbing peaks. And so you have to find greater reasons for climbing, you know. And so when we did the One Blood Expedition, I started a nonprofit to help people in Africa uh, with malaria. Okay. People, so malaria affects mostly children five and younger and pregnant mothers. And so I had... Uh, been invited, you know, to go to Africa to help a friend start up an orphanage. So I was there for four months and just saw, you know, that this was a major issue. And I was like, man, I want to do something about you're, it. You're in good company there with uh, with uh, the Bill Gates Foundation. They're trying to eradicate. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and so I was like, you know, one thing I know is adventure. And uh, so why not? Let's let's go do this and see if we can raise some money, uh, you know, for this this cause and uh, and so started a nonprofit. We went and did we we weren't 100% successful on the uh, on the expedition because we were we were focused on on the money part. So we you know we climbed Kilimanjaro. We got so close to the top of Mount Kenya because it's a technical peak. Um, but we uh, essentially what we, what ended up happening is we ran out of time. So we had to come down that canoe across Lake Victoria. We we made that, and then we made it to the third peak. We, uh, we ran out of time. So what I've had to do over the years is go back and do each, each section. But what we were successful in is meeting with communities when we were biking across Africa, talking to the leaders, trying to talk to them about malaria, and then raising money. Mm-hmm. And so since then, we're trying to always do that, where we, you know, we're doing adventure with purpose. So we um, went to, uh, well, this was in the U.S., you know, not too far after that. Africa trip, we, my brother and I biked across uh, the U.S. It was called the Ridewell Tour, and that was for Bloodwater Mission. They're out of Nashville. And so they, they raise money for clean water and uh, clean blood in Africa. And so we biked across the U.S. with the team, and that raised $200,000. That wow. wasn't just us, but that was the whole team that raised $200,000. Uh, and that was all towards Africa. So we're just now, you know, now that we've been doing this for a while, you know, uh, we're always just looking for cool opportunities to do adventure and to do something that, you know, kind of takes us a little bit beyond uh, just the adventure aspect. So, so tell me a little bit about the logistics behind it for the uninitiated. You're, you're saying um, 
hey, we're going to go and, and climb three mountains and, and canoe across the lake. How do you even start with something like this? Do you just basically have a laptop and you start Googling stuff? I mean, are there, are there sort of communities that have done this before and you, you, you talk to them? Tell me about sort of the, the logistics around preparing for the un, unpreparable, you know, being, making sure you come out alive at the end at the same time, you know. Uh, understanding it, it, what it takes to get something like that done. I don't even know where I would it, start it, it, with this. It can be pretty overwhelming. You know, in the example of the Africa trip, you know, the Alaska trip, there's a lot of information out there because you're in North America. But it had its challenges. But then when you go do something like the uh, One Blood Expedition in Africa, you know, canoeing across Lake Victoria, we would um, camp out on these islands. You know, some had people, some didn't. And usually when they had people, they had never seen a white person. That before. is crazy. And uh, and so the only maps that we had were Russian maps, you know, and uh, and so it made it really difficult. Um, but that was the only thing that we had. And we went with that. And then we would use um, Google Maps and just kind of zoom in and, and, you know, take some pictures of that. So, uh, I mean, I think the, the easiest way to answer that question is you, you use every potential resource that you can. And, uh, you know, had this been done before? I mean, were you the no, first ones? Yeah, you? no, it's neither one of those trips had ever been done before. And it was just kind of, it sounded <laughs> cool to crazy. Do. And uh, and so, you know, in the end, you you try to prepare as much as you can. And then you end up just saying, well, this is as much as I can get. Well, let's hope for the best. So <laughs> take me back to that moment where you're pushing off the canoe, canoe at, the, at the shore of that lake. And that was that was pure chaos because we had to get permission from the village chief right in that small little town. Luckily, I had a friend. How long is that? I mean, distance-wise. I think, I think our, our section that we did was probably uh, 200 miles or something like that. Oh, wow. So we were going from Kenya into Uganda. And so we left Kenya, and I had a Kenyan friend that helped us a little bit, you know, like get us to the shores. I mean, this, people don't speak English there. Like, they have, like, their Some their did. Own. Some did. Uh, I think the chief did enough. And then, you know, so the whole village comes. So we had a, uh, a pack canoe. So it has like this skeleton frame. And uh, so you have to build your canoe because um, we, you know, we brought it from the U.S. So the whole village comes out and they want to tell us how to put it together. <laughs> and I have pictures of just hundreds of people surrounding us and this canoe. And they just, you know, they just want to watch, you know. And so... You know, so so that you have everybody's good graces. Like we let one or two, you know, of the village chiefs and some other people like try out our canoe <laughs> and just paddle around. And it's like, oh, we got to go, but we got we also have to let them do this. Uh, and so it was pretty chaotic, but it, at the same time, like you have to enjoy that that part and of the it. cultural experience. Must have been amazing. Yeah, it's just so yeah, so awesome. And so then you know, like I said, we would we'd paddle from island to island and. So you push off and you think, hey, I'm going to be on this lake for 200 miles. What goes through your mind? I mean, is there any kind of doubt? Is it just a a pure adrenaline? You know, at at this point, I feel like um, I think I think I try to compartmentalize things. Like I don't think about 200 miles. Okay. I think about what do I have to do right now at this very moment, and what you know, what's today going to look like? I don't. I don't. You know, I don't look at that other stuff. I. I looked at all that other stuff when I was planning for it, and then when I get into the water, I only look at that very moment, what's happening, you know, because then it just becomes overwhelming. You get scared, you get anxious, you know, or you let these doubts creep in your mind, like, what am I thinking? And there's crocodiles, there's hippos. <laughs> you know, you can't think of any of those things. I think it's just like if you were doing, you know, a marathon or doing a triathlon. Like, I don't think if you want to do an Ironman, 
you know, you don't want to think about all three events as you're doing one event. You right. know, you want to think about swimming when you're swimming and when you want to think about biking when you're biking, you want to think about running when you're running, you know. And so it's like when I'm canoeing, we're only thinking about that very moment, you know, like just those paddle strokes and you just kind of get into that, you know, meditative state. <laughs> you're just like So stroke. speaking about meditative state, I mean, you're super fit, obviously. You've played sports all your life. You're climbing mountains. Did you do anything to mentally prepare yourself for it? You know, sort of pull yourself in the moment with, I don't know, meditation, breathing techniques, any... Is that something that you prepared for as well, or do you just kind of have that ability to, to, to bring yourself into the moment? The I think time? I do it during training. Like when I'm when I'm training, like I was saying, you know, you, every sport that I've done, you kind of learn a little bit. And so like with skeleton, you know, you're practicing visualizations. So you're trying to practice like thinking about yourself in that moment when you're there and, you know, what does it look like to be successful? You know, like if you picture yourself on top of all, you know, all these summits, you know, and you can just think about what that picture looks like is when you get there, you're like, this is, I already thought about this. Right. This has already happened, you know? So visualizing. And then when I'm training, uh, a lot of times, like I'll go run the hills or I'll go trail running here, just here in Austin. Cause people are like, how do you train for these big mountains, you know, in a place like Texas? But, um, the intensity that I train at, and then what I'm training is, the whole time I'm thinking about, you know, the peak that I'm climbing. Um, and so if I go climb a hill, like I'm attacking it, you know, I'm thinking like, this is what it's going to feel like when I'm climbing. Right. Uh, and so I'm trying to always put myself in that uh, perspective, you know, and then just, I think it's important to catch yourself, like any kind of negative thoughts like this, this to me is one of the most key aspects is catching those negative thoughts. Like it's a, it's a biblical principle or, or it's, it's, I can't remember the scripture in the Bible where it's like, you know, uh, you have to capture those thoughts. Like as soon as those negative thoughts enter your mind, you need to capture them and then replace them. Uh, and so like, that's, you know, like my brother and I, you know, we, uh, like before we do any kind of big trip or any big climb, like we just stop and we just pray. Um, you know, and that's one of the things that we do. Like, man, we don't, we don't want to argue with each other. We don't want to. We don't want to be negative with each other, you know. We want to be positive. We want to. We want to uplift each other, and that's not easy when you've got a long history with a brother, right? You know, uh, but you have to be able to do that. It could make it or it could break you. I mean, in it, one it, way, you can say, I, "I could never do this with anyone. I'm as close as, unless I'm as close to this person as my brother." Or you could say, "There's nobody else that I would do this with." Right, and, and you know, we've had we've had times when it's like we've been arguing, and it's like, man. Like if we are, keep arguing like this, it's either we're either not going to be successful or even worse, it's going to kill us, you know. And so you have to be able to capture that that moment, that thought, like when it becomes negative, and say I have to be able to replace this, you know, with something that's gonna <laughs> it's gonna keep me alive. Right, know? right, right. So so switching gears just a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about that uh, transition to now. This is a business. So now you take you know, fat and uh, unfit people like myself and try to tell them, hey, we're, we're going to go up Mount Hood and we've never done anything like this before. We're not as fit as you are. We have no idea what we're doing. Now you have not just your own responsibility, but now you carry responsibility for other people. I'm thinking of, you know, Everest expeditions that have gone awry and, and things like that. But how how is that different when you guide other people and you're trying to, to exp explore it through other people rather than doing it by yourself? And what did that do for you in terms of how you approached this kind of this kind of work yeah I would I would say like I just got back uh, you know a few weeks ago from a trip to 
South and Central America. And uh, so I went and climbed Aconcagua, which is the highest peak in South America. It's just under 23,000 feet. And I had a group of three people, you know, and if at this point, you know, I've climbed a lot of mountains. I've done a lot of hard things. If I were to go do that with my brother, Greg, uh, I would I don't I want to say it's easy because no mountain, you know, is easy, but it would be significantly easier if it were just the two of us. You know, I'd find I'd, I'd feel pretty confident. Right. Of course. Uh, with just the two of us. So when you throw in throw in the mix of three people and these are three people who who. I would say probably, you know, uh, weren't where they needed to be and maybe weren't qualified to, to climb the mountain. In fact, I had one guy who uh, only had one leg. So he, wow. was, uh, he was an amputee. Um, but part of, so there's two, two ways to look at it. One is I love challenges and I like to challenge myself. My brother and I do. And so for me, because this peak would have been easier if it were just me doing it, I find, you know, I find a great reward and, and it much more significance if I'm taking people who I know it's going to be pushing them, like, you know, above and beyond that limit for themselves. Right. So I enjoy that, but it, it, is, it is very, very uh, heavy with the, <laughs> the responsibility of making sure these people uh, climb this mountain. Potentially, you, you, so you're trying to get them to a, you know, to a successful summit and then get them down alive. Uh, so that it, it definitely weighs really heavy, right? Uh, and I would say so much so that I've kind of made it a, a a point that I don't really like. I don't think I would ever um, guide anybody on Everest or like some crazy major peak. Like Aconcagua was kind of even almost too much. I think I would rather take people on you know mountains like Kilimanjaro or th- things like that because uh, because the burden is so heavy. Mm-hmm. Right, but I, I think at that point in time, perhaps this that personal leadership that you had carried with with you through those trips uh, down the coast or in Africa, and it turns into like people leadership, right? Where now you're leading other people, and it's a new skill that you maybe developed in in, in coordinating across a diverse group of people. I remember when we were preparing to go summit Mount Hood, and we had that exercise uh, where we were strapped together by ropes, and I remember you and Greg showing us that I, I had a tremendous team building experience at that moment because you guys were so good at explaining, you know, the dependency we had on each other and, you know, how to turn our egos off and all that. I, I think you, there was there was definitely a, a notion for me that you guys have, had grown as leaders more than as athletes, really. In that moment, I thought I thought uh, really safe. I thought that you guys were well prepared, um, but it was an, a tremendous experience for me, regardless of whether or not we're going to go up that mountain. Um, I felt that just that experience of, of, of saying, hey, we're tied together by a rope. We could, you know, if, if we don't do the right thing, we could we could perish today. So here's what we need to do to, for that to not happen. So I, th- I think that's what I recognized in you and Greg at that moment, that you, you had changed as, as people before, a crazy football player. At that moment, you were, you know, totally different people. How do you, how do you feel about that transition? Yeah, and it's nice to hear from kind of a lot of times, you know, you don't get that feedback. So that's, that's nice to hear. I, I would say both Greg and I, like we really enjoy the leadership aspect of the outdoors. Uh, and like, I, you know, it's kind of three, there's three different uh, modes of leadership. You know, there's leading yourself, 
there's leading teams and then leading organizations is kind of how I look at it. And it's like in order to lead teams and then greater teams, organizations, you have to be able to lead yourself. Right. You know, and so, yeah, we've just found in our own personal experience and working with so many people and I've, you know, worked with thousands and thousands of people doing all kinds of leadership trainings and team building trainings, um, both indoors and outdoors, uh, is that it's so it's so key to getting all these uh, personalities and the group dynamics, you know, uh, lined up. And, you know, we do all kinds of kind of these indoor corporate team building <laughs> events. You know, when we go, we'll go to all kinds of companies all over Texas. I've done it all over the U.S. And, you know, but there's, there's no metaphor creating. I mean, it's just like it's so obvious, like when you're climbing a mountain and you're roped up, like how dependent you are. Ex- you that's know? exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you can, yeah. you can be in, in a team room and, you know, fall back over and people catch you. That's one thing. But, I mean, at that moment, we, we knew, you know, exactly who was in front of us and who was behind us, and we were tied together by a rope, and there was no, no ifs, ands, or buts at that moment, right? Yeah, and I, and I, love, I love that. Uh, and I mean, it's one of the reasons why I just love mountains, you know, because it's like, it's just, it's just very, it's just very, it's a very clear picture, you know, it's like, you know what your goal is, it's the summit, you know, you know, once you're up at the summit, you know, you know, your new goal is to get back down alive, <laughs> right, exactly. you know, and then when you're doing it with other people, uh, I mean, it just makes it infinitely more difficult if you're not uh, aligned together you know and if you are I mean it's just this an amazing it's an amazing experience because not not only are you tying in you know um, athleticism you have to be you know you have to perform and, and use your body but you're having to incorporate now your natural surroundings and so when you put those two things together I mean it just makes it really does make it a very uh, spiritual experience right right so so speaking of spiritual experience I, and you mentioned earlier sort of you know your connection with with, with religion and, and what you do to prepare for that but um, what would you tell um, someone like me, sort of, you know, in the corporate world, we got, we're chasing, you know, mortgages and, and, and other things. That, what is, how do we pull ourselves sort of in that moment, into the moment more if we don't do what you do? Like, what would you tell me that I could do now that, that would get me closer to, to where you've, where you are now or would get me maybe a tenth of a, of a percent of, a, of the same feeling that you feel when you just climb that? What can I do now? For someone who's listening, say, I'm, I, you know, it's good for him that he can do all that, and he's he's awesome. But I could never do this. I'm stuck, you know, here in my living room watching watching TV. What would you tell him to 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 do to kind of get a glimpse of what it feels like and maybe get that spark going? It, you know, it, I I struggle with that when I'm not climbing a mountain. <laughs> okay, like, I you know I, every time I get get down, you know, and I've had this amazing experience and. Uh, I've been in these beautiful places. I mean, it's been in some amazing places. And then I, I get back, you know, into the everyday world and I'm at home and I'm like, I just want to be out there again, you know? And, and so it is, it's, it's really difficult uh, when you're stuck in your, you know, your cubicle or your (laughs) nine to five job. Um, And, and so I would just say that, you know, you have to be really intentional the way you live and, um, I think a lot of people, you know, they just, they get, they get so stuck in their, you know, in their world. And when that happens, you just start becoming so inwardly focused, you know. And so when you start shifting and you start thinking more about um, others and the, you know, outside world, like, you know, anytime I'm, 
I'm, I'm here. I'm just, I'm thinking about like, you know, the people in Africa. I'm like, man, I cannot believe that here in the U.S. I have all of these amazing things that I take for granted every day from the very simple of just turning on my water faucet and water comes out. And I turn on my shower and hot water comes on when I want it. And I flip on the light switch and the lights come on when I want them to, you know, like just very simple things. And I'm thinking at the very same time that I'm, I'm, you know, taking for granted these things, there's people living in, in Africa, you know, 54 countries in Africa, and you've got all these, you know, you've got seven countries in Central America, and you've got 13 countries in South America, and you've got all these countries in, in Middle East, uh, and they're all struggling. Right. every day and so many of them want to come here and i know that because i talk to them because right. i'm in these places and they just want to be where i'm at you know and so when you start to realize like man i have so many opportunities that are in front of me i have so many blessings and 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 if you start thinking like that then you can get off you know your your pooper pot and just be <laughs> like, <laughs> like man you know uh i have so many things and 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 it but but it takes it takes intentional living. It takes it takes you focusing on on like I'm not gonna think this way, you know. Because I here I I've been now to all, just almost 50 countries, and so I have this perspective of 50 countries. I have all these mountains that I've climbed, but no matter what, every time I come back, I I fall into this like you know. Uh, <laughs> man, you know, my life's horrible, my life's <laughs> terrible, you know, and so it, it takes me really having to, to reset, to refocus, um, you know, and making that connection to the outdoors is like, man, it's, it's amazing, like, if you just go find a trail, like, Austin is full of them, like, if you just go, go hiking, or just go, get, go on a town lake and go kayaking, you know, and then just start seeing the little things like you know you just paying attention like oh man that's a that's a beautiful flower right. that's an that's an amazing little turtle floating right there you know and just taking um, you know taking interest in just the small things that are around you appreciating those small things around you you know and it's amazing what it does it does to you internally and just like you know just kind of revitalizes your spirit like man I just needed to be outside a little bit right. So, so just basically just open the door and get outside and just start walking, right? <laughs> yeah, just, get, just, just getting some movement. I mean, you know, I, I, I like some days I'm, like, I'm just in a horrible mood and I'm like, oh, one, I didn't go outside. Two, I didn't go exercise. You know, three, I'm so focused on all my own problems. You know, no wonder I'm a mess right now. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just like just doing those those three little things, just getting some movement in, getting outside and getting some sunlight, you know, and just and just focusing on on what you have. Uh, I think it does amazing things for for us, you know. Or they, they could just go, I guess, go to your website and sign up for your for your next next ex expedition. What do you got lined up? I know I know I want to talk a little bit about the C7 here in a minute, but, you know, if, if I were to go to your website, what would I find in terms of things that I, you could take me on next? Well, springtime is, uh, is upon us, and so it's, it's great weather for doing all kinds of outdoor stuff. Locally in Austin, we do, uh, we do climbing trips out to Reimer's Ranch, which is a, one of the prettiest places in Austin. Um, you know, we, do, uh, kayak, we have kayak rentals out at Cedar Hill State Park, which is in Dallas. Uh, and then... I'm leaving here in a few days. I'm going to Utah, and one of my favorite trips I love to do, it's uh, the Pariah Canyon. It's, it's considered one of the 
top backpacking trips in in the world it's like you know one of the top 50 and uh it's 43 miles and you're just going through canyon country 300 foot walls just straight up above you and it's like just beautiful spectacular wow, have to check that out yeah so i'll be doing that um yeah and we're always i oh, mean i'm always wanting to take people out to do kilimanjaro okay year, year round so uh yeah that, that that's a little bit further you know away so that's why we have you know you got rock climbing in austin and you got kilimanjaro in africa <laughs> that's crazy Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about your, your most recent trip, the, the Poor Man's Seven Summits, <laughs> yeah. uh, C7, the highest mountains in Central America, seven countries, seven mountains. You were trying to, to break a world record with this, weren't you? Yes. So, so tell the starters where, I think you started in Belize, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, for those who don't know, the seven summits, the seven highest peaks and the seven continental, uh, or the seven continents. And so, you know, If you can't afford to do the, you know, Antarctica and, and Everest, you've got seven Central American countries right down the road from Texas. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, it's one of those kind of obscure things that not many people have even heard of, uh, you know, the seven Central American summits. And so there's only a handful of guys have actually even, I would say, climbed all seven of them, you know, maybe 10 guys or so. Uh, and... I have this thing uh, that I wanted to be the first person to climb the highest point in every country in the Americas, so in North and South America. And, uh, and so two guys just climbed the highest points in North America. I have a, I have a few to or have Canada to go. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, man, Central America. And I started doing some research. There's actually a book that was recently put out. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think it's the only other guy who's climbed the seven uh, <laughs> okay. Central summits, but, uh, And so started looking at it, and I was like, man, this would be a really cool thing, not only to do, but to how fast can we do it? And so I started looking to see, you know, who had the record. <laughs> and no one's done all seven continuously. So everybody always does six, and then they leave Belize last. And mm -hmm. it's interesting because Belize is the shortest of the seven, uh, but it's it's by far the most remote. That's Doyle, Doyle's Delight, I so, think is what, yeah, the, what they Doyle's call it. Doyle's Delight, and it was only recently discovered not that long ago. And yeah, so, I, I, I saw that on your Facebook page. It said it's like somewhere in the, in, in the jungle, I guess. They didn't remote. know there was a mountain hidden underneath that. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was, it, you know, it was just some scientists that uh, discovered it. and so That's like, crazy. I, I thought by now that every inch of the world, including the ocean floor, is mapped by now by oh, Google no. or something. That's the, that's the great thing, you know. Like, <laughs> that is crazy. There's, there's still always new discoveries. And... Yeah, if you look at some some maps, it still shows Victoria Peak as the highest as the highest point in Belize. And so I think you know if if, if you look at how long it's taken, you know other people, it's uh, you know you have like over a year, you know, because <laughs> they climb six and then the next year they go and do Belize. So we wanted to do all seven continuously and then just destroy the record by seeing how fast we could do it. So the goal was to do so. Here's, here's Brandon and, and Greg, just cr uh, you're doing the as fast as you can. Yeah, right? so we wanted to do seven and 11, because uh, it just sounds cool. Uh, and so why not? Right? Seven, seven summits in 11 days. In 11 days, yeah. That so, is crazy. So that was the goal. And we knew by far, as you were asking earlier about logistics, you know, um, that was that was going to be the crux of the uh, of the climb, is, is figuring out the logistics of, tr you know, getting around in these very difficult countries uh, <laughs> that are not very, you know, good on, uh, I would say, transportation. So let's run them down. You got, you got Guatemala, you got Costa Rica, Panama, 
Honduras, El Salvador, Belize, and Nicaragua. Some of those are like ex-war zones, even. I mean, <laughs> and 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 you know, jungle and guerrillas and landmines and yeah, I mean, isn't it great? I, I, <laughs> you got some, you got some cojones, man. That's, I, I, I'll let you that. I'll let you have that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we started off. Uh, I I just climbed Aconcagua and I flew f- straight from Argentina to Belize. And uh, I met my brother-in-law, one of my buddies who I've done some adventures with, and my uh, fairly new girlfriend who <laughs> she, I don't think she knew what she was getting into. Yeah, she, she's been sitting patiently with her next to her the whole time. And <laughs> we'll, we'll have to bring her on the, on the podcast next yeah. and say, you know. <laughs> yeah, Brennan's he's full of crap. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so they, they came and they, and they met me uh, and... We start. We wanted to climb the hardest peak first, uh, and it's you know, give or take forty to fifty miles of pure jungle bushwhacking. I mean, it, it is. If you want true exploration and adventure, this this is the peak. And people think of Belize like, hey, beaches, coke and rum, you know, which all is true you can eat. if you're at the coastline. And then once <laughs> as soon as you move inward, uh, it's it's pure jungle, and I mean, it's a beautiful country. And so, uh, yeah, did a lot of research and found that, you know, there's, there's basically two approaches, the southern and the northern approach. We decided to take the northern approach because the southern approach, uh, a few years back, some people were, uh, <laughs> were <laughs> shot at. And uh, you get a lot of guys looking for gold. They come across the Guatemalan border uh, searching for gold. And so they, uh, they come, you know, fires are blazing. So we're like, we're going to avoid that, come from the north side, and hopefully we'll be safe. We, uh, we, and so because of that, we had a couple locals, um, park rangers who came with us, carried, carried guns. Uh, that was the only way they were going to let us, you know, go in there. Is, is Did it, you have to talk to like any government officials or the bribes involved? I mean, you don't have to say, say yes or no. But I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm envisioning some shady hut in the jungle somewhere and there's a dude and you're like, you have to get the stamp or something. Well, and, I got, you know, I, luckily I, I got connected. Because a lot of the mountains are governed by, I know when we hiked in the Himalayas, every mountain was sort of governed and so we had to go and get stamps just to be in the park. Yeah. Yeah, in in this case, we got kind of connected to uh, a good source, and he was connected to it was actually a newly formed national park. So there's a new, uh, I think it's a Chickabool National Park. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds made up. It's not. <laughs> and, uh, it's uh, so it's a national park. So we got connected to someone who uh, works in the park, and so because of that, we had we ended up having uh, a medic, two rangers. And uh, a guy who does a lot of research on the caves, or a lot of the cave systems there in that national park, and a biologist. Okay. Uh, so it was, I mean, it was, it was awesome because we had all these, you know, these, these Belizean guys with us. And uh, a few of them had climbed it before. And so, you know, we're looking at, you know, only guys who've actually climbed the peak. And it really helped because it was, I mean... I don't think we'd have been able to do this peak on our own. It's just, it's just. I mean, at so some point in time, you're in the jungle and there's no more track. Even you know, so yeah, they're just they, navigating by compass and GPS exactly. to some degree. And they have. I mean, machetes. the jungle grows back like within a day, pretty much. Right? That's right. So, no so matter, these guys all have machetes and they're chopping. And that is crazy. So you know, it usually takes six or seven days. And you know, we took a we took a tractor through some of some of the first section was was you know probably worse than the hiking because it was just such a rough i mean it wasn't a road it was just mud it was just pure mud and 
you know, sometimes three feet, four feet high and the tractor gets stuck and that's uh, just, you know, crazy. And so, uh, so it usually takes, you know, six days. So we ended up doing that first peak. Um, we actually, it took us two days. Uh, so two days up, two days down. So, so you're already four days down. You got seven days left. Well, here's here's the uh, thing that uh, is tricky with record-breaking attempts. So, like a lot of times when guys are doing um, record attempts, you know, they uh, when they're doing multiple peaks, they'll do summit to summit. Okay. So, either way, however we look at it, we broke the record by a lot of days. But we decided to do like a lot of others, and so we did summit to summit. So. So we go up the peak in two days, and then the next day we leave the peak. And so when we start, that's leaving, when you start counting. That's when you start the clock. Right. So if you had those those other two days, it, you know, we still beat it. But we're we're going with the uh, summit to summit uh, rule that a lot of people follow. So we leave. It takes us two days to get back down, uh, and then we start cranking off the uh, the peak. So everybody left us except for uh, Taylor, my girlfriend. She she uh, stayed and uh, climbed the, uh, the Guatemalan peak. So we went from north to south, so we started Guatemala. That's the highest peak in Central America, just under 14,000. That one's, you know, they, people uh, do that in two days. Was it Tajamulco? Tajamulco. Tajamulco, right. So people look at uh, doing that one using two days. We ended up doing that in three, hour, three and a half hours. <laughs> You're just basically running uphill at this point. Yeah, right? we did. Yeah, we did. Are you carrying backpacks at this? Small or? backpacks and just in shorts, you know. Like, that's <laughs> well, game. that's a good thing about Central America. I guess it's, it's not like you're going to freeze to death. Some, in, well, in, some in of the these peaks were pretty. Kumbo Icefall. They're pretty. They're not. Now, they're not Everest or Aconcagua, but they're chilly. You know, we had probably 20s and 30s on some of the peaks. Um, but if you're going fast, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so we did, uh, so you throw all the, all the learnings from your mountaineering school out the window and you just haul an ass. <laughs> yeah. Just, just, we're just basically trail running. <laughs> uh, yeah. So then we did Guatemala and then from Guatemala, we, uh, we did El Salvador. And so at that point, my brother comes and meets us. He, he didn't get to do the first two peaks. He had to go to a wedding, unfortunately. So he meets us in El Salvador. We do El Salvador. We, crank that that was the easiest of the three it was just under uh, nine thousand feet okay and that one just took us you know uh most people drive up to the top of that one so that was the easy one but we didn't drive it we ended up i think we did about six miles on that one did that in a few hours and then uh from el salvador we went to honduras honduras was an amazing peak that thing's you know what it said the cerro las minas I yeah think is they cerro call las it, right? minas and it's some uh, of that is volcanic too uh, vol volcanic volcanoes too right i think yeah. i don't know yeah the uh the guatemalan peak was uh, volcanic yeah some of them were volcanic and others are just they're just covered in jungle and we were really looking forward to the peak in honduras because just really thick vegetation i think that one's usually done as two or three days uh really long distance and i mean the elevation gains are huge on these because a lot of times you know you're sea level too you're near much. you're near sea level or you're near ocean so i mean like you know the the honduran peak i think it was like you know, 5,000 or 6,000 feet, and it was maybe, I don't know, 16, 17 miles. So that one we were hoping to go. I mean, it's pretty much straight up at this point. Yeah, so they, people, that's why people do it. You know, they do it as two, two campsites, so they do it in three days. And I think that one took us six hours. So, you know, it slowed, it slowed down a little bit, but we still were, we were still doing some good running. And then uh, from Honduras, we went to uh, Nicaragua. And that was an amazing peak. That's probably the best one, would you say? It was Mog one of my Mogoton, favorites. right? Mogoton. Yeah. It was one of my favorites. Uh, I, mean, I, I looked some pictures up online. It looks amazing. Well, what's awesome about that peak is 
you got landmines. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, so the Sandinistas, when they were there, you know, they, 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 you know, they had all the issues back in the 80s. And so the landmines still haven't been uh, fully recovered. So what's that place like now? I, I know years ago I met a German guy that worked six months out of the year, and then six months he took off, and he spent six months in Nicaragua, and he said it's pretty dicey still. So that was probably in the 90s. Yeah. Is, is, it, is it okay now? Yeah, I would say overall... Also, These are not like the, the places that, you know, you would go and book Expedia vacations. Like El Salvador even, you know, used to have some pretty bad uh, issues. But I would say El Salvador and Nicaragua are both, I would say I felt, you know, safe the entire time we were we were in any of the, those countries. And Honduras is even supposed to have some some issues. But we felt safe. Um, no, no, you know, no major issues. I think with most of those countries, you know, you might have some petty Petty theft and those kinds of things, but if you if you just stay on alert, you're you're fine. Yeah, yeah. You know? and, and uh, we went to uh, um, Cambodia, and there's still landmines over there, especially like border to Thailand. That's what a lot of people do with four wheel drive, and they said you have to have a local guide, you have to have something uh, that to guide you. Otherwise, you know, you just so that, get blown up. That's, that's what we ended up doing. We hired a we hired a guide, um, and the cool thing was the base of the, the climb near the trailhead was was uh, near a lot of coffee plantations. There were coffee plantations everywhere. And so the guy that, the you know, you want to call him a guide, he's really a coffee plantation uh, owner. I think his family owns it. And so, you know, we, we go to his coffee plantation. He makes his coffee straight from the source. I mean, it was amazing. And, and then you see all the workers there. And so it was a, it was a really kind of full-on experience because you're, you're there with the coffee plantation, you know, workers getting to see him, you know, producing, making the coffee. We get to have some of the coffee, and then we start the climb. And uh, so I think we ended up doing that, that peak in about – and that, that's one they say, you know, is usually a, a, a long day, um, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 hours or something. And we ended up doing that in, I think, three or four hours. Wow. We could. I think with a lot of these, we probably, you know, like that peak, we could have probably done in an hour or two if we were just running all out. But you, you know, every time we'd start running, the guide would be like, "Hey, you guys, <laughs> come back here." <laughs> so, uh, so then we did that peak, and then from Nicaragua, uh, we had the last two peaks, and what made the last two peaks by far uh, the most difficult is we were running out of time. Okay. So we had a plane to catch, and uh, we wanted to keep it. And so, um, so the last two peaks, Taylor decided she didn't, she, she had enough. <laughs> and so, uh, so my brother, he, uh, he jumped in and we, the last two peaks, we were up 50 hours straight. Are you serious? We did not sleep for 50 hours. And, uh, and so I have to f dig up that picture of the, uh, in, uh, I think it was, uh, Panama. Was it Panama in the middle of the night? And it looked like you're, you're my eyes are closed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you go to Instagram, Brandon at Brandon Bargo. I think it's B R A N N D O N. It's a unusual spelling, but um, I'll put that in the show notes so people can check it out. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So we did 50 hours nonstop. And, uh, the reason was that just, we were, the transportation was ridiculous. I mean, we would we would hop on a taxi, and then we'd hop on a bus, and then the bus would take you know twelve hours, and then you get on another taxi, get on another bus, another four hours, and then get another bus, and then finally, you know, might take a little rickshaw taxi or something to the base of the mountain, and then you go climb, uh, you know, for ten hours, 
So when we did uh, Costa Rica, it was really, I would say that was kind of the, uh, the hardest of the seven for me physically because of all the others that had come before it. Exactly. So it's accumulative yeah, because you're looking exhaustion at, that sets you know, in and you have no time to recover pretty much other yeah. than on these horrible bus rides. So probably, Everest, and then even then you're not really sleeping, you know, and right. there's no AC and uh, it's just horrible. So then when we did the Costa Rican peak, Chiripo, uh, that one's usually done as a three or four day uh climb and we were you know we were going to obviously try and do it in a day and uh so that was 25 miles round trip with almost 10,000 feet of climbing and so when you're climbing everest everest is 11,000 feet of climbing so obviously you're not climbing at elevation but you're you know you're just doing that elevation distance i mean difference yeah so we're doing 10,000 feet of climbing 25 miles uh, and we, you know, so we take all these buses to get there after we'd climb the one in Nicaragua, you know, go from Nicaragua to Costa Rica, get to the base. Um, we, uh, throw our big backpacks, you know, in a little hostel room and then put on our tiny packs, put on our shorts, you know, you got to go fast. And then we left at about 1030 at night. Uh, so the whole thing we did in, in the dark, um, and we were hoping to do it. I mean, at that point we were so tired. We were hoping to do it in seven hours. It ended up taking us 10 and a half hours. Wow. So, yeah, 10 and a half hours. We get back down. You're just putting the foot in front of the other at this point. And, and actually, to do 10 and a half hours, we were doing a lot of, of running. But <laughs> you got you to gotta realize, 10,000 feet of climbing, I mean, you know, well, basically what you do is you speed hike the real, I mean, these were steep, steep climbs. You speed hike those sections, and then when you hit a flat, you run it. And then and then when you get down, when you hit the down slopes, you run them. So, so this is basically just a tandem duo Brandon and Greg, if, if anybody else, you know, you, there's sort of a, a cadence between the two of you. You've, you've done this so many times together, so you know kind of what everybody else can handle as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, and, 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 and we rotate. Like, you know, he'll he'll get up front, he'll push me, and then I'm like, man, I, you know, I, I got to keep going. And then, uh, and then he starts getting tired, and then we swap out, you know. So we make it back down, take all those same buses, you know, 10-hour bus rides, 12-hour bus rides, and, uh, and we get to Panama. Haven't, you know, haven't done any sleeping. And then uh, when we get to Panama, we catch a, a, a shuttle to the base of the final peak, seven, you know, peak number seven, uh, Volcan. So that's a volcano, Volcan uh, Baru. Baru, Baru, right. So it's about 11,400 feet. And both, both of those peaks, the cool thing is if you stand at the top of them, um, in good clear conditions, you, you can, can see, see the, the other one. You can see no, you can well, you can see the other ones, but you can also see both oceans. Oh wow! It's the only place you can see both the uh, Pacific and the Atlantic is oh, wow. in Panama. Unfortunately, we're doing all of this at night. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so usually when we're coming down, the sun might be barely starting to peak up, and we would see locals, you know, and they'd be asking us like, "Why are you guys coming down? <laughs> 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 like it's about to get nice." And we're like, "Oh man, we're trying to break records here." Right. Uh, so. So anyway, we so the <laughs> that vo- the volcano in in Panama, it was just pure misery. We we ended up doing it was six thousand feet of climbing. That was about eighteen miles round trip. So at this point, you know, like I said, is fifty two hours nonstop. So you know, at about hour forty eight, we we were you know we would be hiking four or five steps, and then we'd be sleeping three or four steps. You know, like we were sleepwalking, and uh, I mean, there's no way we could stay awake, you know? And so <laughs> I would rotate cause my brother would be sleeping. I'd have to rotate from like, man, you know, like smack him on the way and pass him. And then we just keep going. And so it was, it was re- the hardest part of that final peak was just staying awake. 
the kick it all, you know, the kicker of the whole thing was at um, when I was in Belize, I I didn't know what I had picked up, but I had picked up some kind of crazy thing, and it was just like so I was like in torture itching my skin because I thought I had some kind of like crazy worms crawling on my skin. <laughs> oh, God. It ended up being ringworm, but it was like the worst case of ringworm I've ever seen, which is a fungus that just like itches like crazy. And most people, they have like one ringworm and they, they can't stop itching. I had like a hundred. Wow. Uh, and so my feet were swelling up. They were bleeding. They were like <laughs> oozing, like the biggest blisters I've ever seen on my feet. It was just miserable. Wow. You know? And I was like, well, I might as well just keep hiking because that, that's the only thing that really keeps my mind off of, like, just the torture that I'm oh going through. Oh, my goodness. That's and, crazy. Uh, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. So, in the end, we come back down. Uh, I think the peak in Panama, it took us, it also took us about, because um, we were really tired, we ended up slowing down. I think it took us, like, eight hours. And uh, we finished uh, once we hit the summit, and it, it, we were slightly shy of our, our goal. So, it took us 12 days. Wow, um, you know, so I think, but still, like crushing any kind of. I think we beat close yeah, the record. previous record by you know uh, eleven months and three hundred and sixty <laughs> days. <laughs> so this is gonna stand for. Well, you say that. Well, what, what our goal was. I know there's like a like a twenty year old kid that's trying to do the eight peaks and and mm. go to North Pole and South Pole, and he's doing it right now. That's right, the Adventure Grand Slam. Right. Yeah. Um, well, what we were hoping is that we would make it hard enough that it, maybe it stands for a couple years and uh whoever does it, it's going to be highly motivated because we knew that like we ended up having to wait a day for our guy to nicaragua because he couldn't do it the day that we wanted to do it so we had to wait for him um on that day and then just transportation if you hit transportation r just right you know you're going to shave off hours and potentially even a day so you know there's somebody out there could potentially do it in, in <laughs> 10 days, 11, you know, I think if we'd have done 11, obviously that would have been better. But I think the only person that's going to do it is going to be, I mean, it's going to be somebody that's really motivated. And that's, right. and that's cool because then you're like, we put it out there, go do it. All right. Out in the internet, you know, <laughs> seven <laughs> summits in 11 days, go, go do it. You know, we'll see it. That's awesome. That's awesome. But great. That's, that's a fabulous story. I think that's one thing when people travel, they bring these stories that are just absolutely crazy and you, you, you really bring those to life. That's amazing. That's, that's really cool. Well, cool, man. So that's, you, what's, uh, what's next for you after this? Uh, you know, I'm, I've just been back a, a few weeks. Just, I'm just trying to recover from my ringworm. And <laughs> so so not, this is this is actually a worm like growing inside of you. <laughs> no, not it's to a, gross people out, but you no, know. it's it's actually <laughs> just, just like, like a fungus. It's, it's just like a fungus. But don't they have don't they have like uh, Costa Rica? They have that whatever Zika virus there now. Oh yeah, well, there was Zika <laughs> going on the whole time we were there. You know, so it's just crazy. Oh, you know, if I sneeze on you, you no, might, you might I don't want to die. First first case in Austin. I, I'm I'm pretty sure I have all kinds of stuff growing in my body, but. What can you know? What can you do? <laughs> so yeah, for me, uh, next is just is just recovering and uh, springtime's starting up. So I'll just be here in Austin, in Texas, doing a lot of uh, local adventures. We uh, work a lot with uh, inner city kids here in Austin and Dallas, but uh, that I mean, I love I love doing that, and so hopefully we'll be doing that here pretty soon with a lot of Austin uh, high schools taking them out to 
Texas State Parks. That's cool. And I mean, there's so many around here. They're just, just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, we love, you know, take them What's out. What's your favorite one? Where would you say? If, I could, if anyone is you know, coming to Texas, where would you send them first? Yeah, and even locals that are here that don't get out very much. Uh, Colorado Bend State Park, we've been going out there lately and working with them. And that's a great, great park. Highly recommend Colorado Bend State Park. The oldie but goodie, Enchanted Rock. You know, yeah. state national I was just area. there two weeks ago. It's, it's, it's awesome. Any every time I've gone, great place. And then you got places just right here in town. You got McKinney Falls State Park, and then you got Pedernales State Park, which is just down the road from here. So, uh, yeah, got a lot of good ones, man. Yeah, I I want to do some trail runs with you. I, I have to drop like a hundred pounds before <laughs> I can do this. With you. I, <laughs> hey, come on. <laughs> hey, I want to I want to do something something fun. Is I'm gonna do this. So basically, I have a bunch of cards here with just some random words. And we're gonna shuffle them a little bit. I give you, I give you. You can pull any out, but we want to do three. Just read, read the word in 30, 60 seconds. You know what? Do you, what comes to mind? Tell us a little bit about about that. So you want me to pull three out? Yeah, just pull one out and read the card. Tell us what the word is and tell us what comes to mind. Uh, the word is fear. And you just want me to talk about a little bit about it? 30, yeah. 60 seconds. What does it mean to you? I would say, from you know, most people, I think they would hear all these stories and me telling all these crazy things and then think, oh, obviously, you know, that's not an issue for you. But I remember I met this uh, famous climber not that long ago, and I was like, man, do you ever get scared when you climb mountains? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he's like, no, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, and I just thought, man, that's I just I, either that, I just thought it was dishonest or I was like, well, he's crazy because I always get scared. And I, I just think that we should have a, a healthy uh, respect, you know, for things that are, are <laughs> you know, climbing mountains. I, I work with kids all the time, you know, and, and they're, you know, we do these challenge courses and take them up on these big telephone poles. And, you know, and I'm like, if you're, if you're scared, that's, that's okay. That's actually a good thing. Right. You know, you should, you should be a little scared. This is not natural, but now you, you need to push to do that. And the reason is, is we don't grow you know, by sitting on our couch playing Nintendo and eating Cheetos. You right. know, we, we grow by pushing ourselves, uh, and, and that's where true growth happens. So I would say when I, see, when I see fear, you know, I also see kind of pushing through those limits, but also accepting that a little fear is okay. Yeah, of course, of course. Cool, very cool. Great perspective. All right, there we go. Let's do two more. Envy. Uh, that's not a... I much prefer fear. <laughs> uh, yeah, man, that's a that's a that's a big one. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'll keep that answer short because I'll just say that uh, that's always one that I'm always trying to keep keep in check. And I think with envy comes comparison, and I I'm always trying to to catch myself from trying to compare myself and be envious of other people, you know, like we, we, we all have, uh, our own paths, you know, God's created us, to, uh, you know, certain body types and brains and passions and desires. And so it's like, we, I think we should fully embrace those and, and stop trying to compare ourselves and trying to be, you know, rich and, beautiful and get nose jobs and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> well, I, I, one, one of the things I think that's, that might be interesting if, because of course you live a pretty crazy life. You travel all over the place and 
maybe not envy is maybe a strong term, but, but you know, people definitely, have, I think, look at you as, as someone who's, who's take, chosen his own path and perhaps comparing that to, you know, the boring lives they live. And, you know, do you ever get that feeling where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm stopping posting yeah. on, online. I, you know, I'm not sending postcards anymore from, I don't know, Nicaragua because, you know, I know the people that read this. Say, I get to go to, I don't know, Corpus Christi. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when, when people... When people kind of like, man, that's amazing. I wish I had, you know, your life, or, you know, and and it it goes back to we've been talking about it, you know, all day is is perspective. You know, there's a lot of things that I haven't been able to have. You know, I I have not been married. I don't have kids. You know, so there's there's compromises or there's things that you know I haven't had that. A lot of times I look at other people. I'm like, man, that would be awesome to to just have a normal life sometimes. You know, <laughs> okay. and, and so I think we often look at other people and wish we had what they had, not knowing the sacrifices they've had to make. You right. know, and there exactly. have been there have been sacrifices. I mean, it, the things I've been talking about sound you know pretty awesome uh, to some people and can be pretty amazing. But there's a lot of sacrifice that comes with that. Right. Very good. One more. One more. Last one. Confidence. Oh, I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> Easy one for you. <laughs> no. Mr. I dig myself in an ice cave at 60 <laughs> mile an hour winds. No, I, I think uh, I think there's there's a difference between com- confidence and arrogance, you know, and and I yeah, I think with life experience often comes confidence, you know, we don't not we don't just pop out of the womb and we're just like feeling like you know superman (laughs) and i just remember in high school you know junior high elementary school you know just really struggling with you know who i was right what i was supposed to be about and i remember playing football in high school and just like oh man you know i wish i could i could start be on the starting varsity team and, and just struggle with that and then by the time i was playing football with you I was extremely confident to the point of arrogance and cockiness. Uh, but that only came from me, you know, playing rugby for four years through college and doing really well. Right. You know, and I started at the bottom. And when I played rugby, I started in the fourth string. And then by the time I was finished, I would be, it became the MVP of the team. And so that builds up a lot of confidence. Like, man, my, my teammates, you know, uh, selected me as the most valuable player. So that slowly starts to build confidence. Now, you don't, you know, you, again, you don't want that to go over into to arrogance. And I think the nice thing about life is as soon as we start, you know, getting this confidence, we get knocked down a little There's bit. There's some humbling moments there. Yeah. And so I feel like that's always, uh, that's, that's where I'm always trying to find that balance of being, being confident from life experience and having, you know, having some success, but knowing that there's going to come some struggle. Well, that's, I think that's a good, good place to end it. Man, I've, I've enjoyed it. Thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for inviting me. Very, very good. One, one, uh, so if people want to find you online or, or otherwise, how, how do people find you? It's, uh, how, how, where do I send them for the uh, Life Adventure connection? So I have uh, the business that we, uh, that we run is called Live Adventure. And so the website is live-adventure.com. And then for all our personal crazy uh, adventures, we have thebargobrothers.com. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, and then if they want to check out some pictures and stuff, you can go there. We, uh, we have a Facebook page. It's Live Adventure. And then 
Instagram, Brandon Bargo, or at Brandon Bargo. They can go there as well. So Cool, cool. We'll, we'll, we'll put those in the show notes for people to, to look at it. But I'm, I'm sure that wasn't the last time I talked to you. But uh, thanks so much for taking the time today, man. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Very cool. Appreciate it. Very cool. Thanks so much for listening to the Android Strength Podcast with your host, Mark Mulzer. We'll catch you next time.